Hi there. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Friday, December 15th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm speaking today with health editor Renee Gertzand and reporter Shira Silkoff, who is joining us for her first daily briefing. Hi to you both. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Good morning. Hi there. It is day 70 of the war. The body of civilian hostage Eliyad Toledano, 28, was recovered yesterday after he was taken hostage by Hamas terrorists from the Supernova Music Festival on October 7th. Yesterday, the Israel Defense Forces also announced the death of Sergeant Oz Shmuel Arad, 19, a soldier from the Combat Engineering Corps killed in southern Gaza on Thursday. His death pushes the toll of slain troops killed in Gaza to 117. Yesterday was also a meeting between Mossad Chief David Barnea with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who is currently in Israel. They met at the Mossad offices in Tel Aviv, and obviously we'll keep on following what happens with that. The president of the International Committee of the Red Cross was also in Israel yesterday. Uh, Renee will tell us more about her comments with regard to the 135 hostages remaining in Gaza. We will also speak about female soldiers in the IDF and how they are faring right now, as well as ongoing mental health stress during the war against Hamas and an unfortunate COVID increase in evacuee hotels. We will discuss all of that after a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Okay, Renee, so at long last, uh, Red Cross International Committee President Mirjana Eger was in Israel yesterday, but she, pretty much as expected, rejected the idea that her agency isn't doing enough to try and visit uh, and check in with the remaining 135 hostages in Gaza. I know that you were not surprised by her comments at all. Tell us why and tell us what was of interest in what she said. What did, you know, sort of make us sit up and take notice? Well, unfortunately, Jessica, there really wasn't anything uh, new and anything of notice in what she said. Um, Mariana Spoljarek Egger made her first trip here. She had not made a visit until yesterday. Um, And basically, she's just uh, repeating the same refrain that without permission from Hamas, there is no way for the international 
Red Cross to visit the hostages, to uh, make sure, you know, to find out what their condition is, to treat their medical problems. There, Many of them were injured when they were captured. Many of them have background health problems, uh, and many of them require daily medications. And Israel has pleaded, you know, whether it's the hostages or whether um, it's been the Israeli government demanding that the Red Cross access the hostages to just let us know how they are and to take care of them. Uh, there has just been no real response from the Red Cross. They claim that, as usual, they're working behind the scenes secretly. Um, and Israel is, is uh, as we just heard uh Prime Minister Netanyahu tell the president of the ICRC yesterday that uh, the the Red Cross has to speak up, has to start putting some public pressure on Hamas. And uh, Spoljarek said that that's just counterproductive. She refused to accept those uh, suggestions and said it's just not going to help. I speak with the hostages' families. I speak with several of them throughout the week. And obviously, some of them, like as you said, their loved ones have underlying medical conditions. And they've been waiting all week long for her to arrive and to actually speak to her, hoping that they would have an effect on what she was going to say and on what the Red Cross would do. So tell us who she actually met with when she was here. She met with Prime Minister Netanyahu. She also met with President Herzog. Um, she, upon arrival at uh, Ben Gurion Airport, she had a sit down with the Foreign Minister Eli Cohen, the Health Minister uh, Uriel Busso, and a few hostage families. Uh, after that, uh, Cohen, the Foreign Minister, came out with a very harsh statement saying that the, the meeting was difficult, disappointing, basically reiterating the same things we've heard before about uh, how what Israel is saying and what she's uh, saying in response. Uh, then in the evening, she met with some more families, a small delegation of families in a Tel Aviv hotel outside, uh, many fa- hostage families, members of the public, uh, members of the medical community community were outside protesting, uh, sending the message that she had to do more. But, uh, you know, again, not much response. Uh, the families did not hear what they wanted to hear. And uh, the health ministry, by the way, put together a detailed document uh, with the medical findings about the both both the physical health and the mental health of the released hostages to try to put across the point of how bad it is in Gaza for the hostages and how with every passing day it's getting worse um, and that was given to her and hopefully she'll do something with that. The released hostages sent a letter to the International Red Cross asking for a meeting while she was here so that they could explain what they went through and they received no response. So there was no meeting with them. Okay. Shira, glad you're joining us for the daily briefing today. So we're talking about one of your recent features about women in the IDF right now. And one of the most striking and disturbing details in the IDF and intelligence failures that led to the October 7th attacks by Hamas was the complete lack of attention paid to reports from the 
Tatspitaniot, the surveillance soldiers, all women, who were who sit literally at the army base that is at the border with Gaza, and they had been reporting signs of unusual activity for several months. And now the survivors, those who did survive the attack, are coming out and talking about the fact that what they had written and what they had paid attention to. And I think that was probably one of the details that led to you writing this piece. Tell us about it. So the jumping off point was definitely the Tatspitaniot. Um, there were a lot of reports about them and there were a lot of them speaking out, the ones who had, you know, the ones who had survived the massacre on their base speaking about how they'd reported um, seeing people come down to the border, seeing people dig holes and how they were ignored. And they didn't even know if any of their reports went up the chain of command to their intelligence officers. So that was definitely the jumping off point. And then um, as well as the reports of the female tank operators who on the day of October 7th drove from the Egyptian border where they were stationed to the Gaza border, and they carried out actions that they weren't trained to do and they just adapted as they went because they were never supposed to be in war and they weren't prepared for it, but they managed to kill more than 50 terrorists. And so people have really started taking notice of the female combat soldiers and of the intelligent soldiers who are really looked down on in the army. Um, and then Netanyahu was asked about the lack of women in government in the war cabinet because in light of what was happening with the women in the army, and he said, well, there are women making decisions, but there really aren't. Miri Regev, who's the transport minister, is the only woman who's able to vote in um, the security cabinet. And there aren't any women in the war cabinet. So the war cabinet is made up of Netanyahu and Defense Minister of Gallant and uh, Minister Benny Gantz with two male observers as well. So there's no women having any input there. And that definitely plays a part in the way I think it's, you know, the way that women were treated as part of a systemic issue, because clearly if there's no people at the top making these decisions with women next to them having input in the decisions, then of course it trickles down into everything, into the army and defense and the way women are treated. So it's all connected, definitely. What was one of the most surprising things you found as you worked on this feature? I think a lot of it has been in the public eye for years, but maybe kind of ignored the way that um, women are disregarded in the government. I mean, we saw that this is the government with the lowest amount, the fewest women in, in several years. Um, and there's been several governments in that time. And it really reflects in the decisions that are being made. And I think that's you would think that in with allowing women into combat roles that they weren't allowed in previously, you would think that that would have impacted somewhere and made change somewhere higher up, but it doesn't seem to have. And I also think what's surprising is these, the continued um, refusal to accept women into the security cabinet in light of everything. And Netanyahu's just disregard for the importance of having women in those spaces and it's not just, uh, oh, women want equality and, you know, 50% representation in the population, so they should be there, although it is that as well. It's that they have an outside perspective that men won't have because they've come from, you know, they've fought in different ways to get into these spaces and they have different perspectives. And it's just, I'd say it's surprising to look at the difference in what could have been with the war response if there had been women there. There are so many women who are 
you know, speaking out against some of the decisions being made. And for the hostages who are held, there's still women in Gaza and just the seeming non-urgency that some people have been showing is concerning. And I think if there were women in these positions, it would be different. In terms of covering what the surveillance soldiers, those who survived, what they have been saying, what struck you about that, about their reports, about what's been reported from their perspective? So they've said that they were ignored because of sexism. And while the issue obviously isn't as black and white as that, it definitely plays a part. And it's understandable how they feel like that. They sit there. It's a job that only women do. And they're told that they do it because they're, they have to, you know, they're the only ones who can spot these things. And they are the only ones who are like patient enough to do it. And they're really told again and again that if they miss something, that could be the difference between life and death. And then it, comes to the fact that they've been for months and months saying there's something happening, there's something happening. And they're very powerless because they can't go higher up the chain of command. They really are the, you know, the lowest level soldiers and they don't have access to the people at the top. And so all they can do is sit there day after day and watch what's happening and report what's happening and not know if anything's going to change because of what they're reporting. And so to just hear them speak and hear them say that, the families of the Tatsbataniot who were killed say that they haven't been visited by senior commanders in the IDF and they've been ignored. It's really heartbreaking because they, you know, their children gave their lives doing a job that they didn't ask for, that they didn't want to have. And they were ignored during the time they were there and they were killed as a result. And now their families are being ignored. And it's just really shocking to see that complete disregard for the people who gave their lives for the country. Yeah, Shira, I'm really glad you wrote that piece. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, Renee will talk to us about what is happening on the mental health front where stress is way up. You're listening to this podcast. So I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, Renee, the numbers are pretty insane, I think, from what you've reported about mental health stress. Tell us what you've been writing about on that front. 
Right. So I just did a, a little update yesterday um, based on a new study, uh, not really a study, a survey done by Goshen, which is a, an organization that promotes child health and well-being, and the Israeli Pediatrics Association. Um, and they surveyed a representative group of Israelis and found that 84% of children Children between birth and age 12 were experiencing emotional distress and anxiety because of the, the events of October 7 and the ensuing war. And 40% of their parents were also experiencing uh, these problems. Um, and of course, the numbers were higher for those who were directly, you know, personally impacted by uh, by the atrocities uh, and the massacres. Uh, the, the numbers there are up to about 93%. Uh, and children who live in areas that have been getting a lot of rocket sirens uh, are, are very anxious. We're talking about about close to 70% of those kids are having um, issues. And um, they're just, uh, you know, the the interesting part of all of this is only 14% of the parents in the survey said that they were, they had sought help for their families, for their children, for themselves. Um, yet, at the same time, a quarter of the, around a quarter of the kids had been taken to the pediatrician in the last two months for just regular checkups or, you know, seasonal illnesses or whatever. And uh, parents reported that the pediatricians were not necessarily prepared to uh, to support the families with these uh, mental health and emotional issues. Um, so there, there's a lot of work to be done. And just coincidentally, the uh, government and the Histadrut, they uh, announced a short-term plan to incentivize uh psychiatrists to move from the private sector into the public health system, uh, or those who are in the public health system to work more hours in it or to stay in it more permanently. So there, there are a number of plans in place to try to address the mental health crisis, but we are a long way from being able to really tackle it. Yeah. For sure. It's going to take a long time. And uh, speaking of seasonal illness, there is definitely a lot of coughing and hacking going on and a COVID increase in the many hotels that are housing evacuees from the north and the south, which is not surprising to hear that it would spread in those envi- in that kind of environment. What, what have you been hearing and reporting? Yeah, so in the last week or so, week to two weeks, the COVID rate in Israel has increased by about 9 to 10%. Um, and uh, that is how, ha- and most m- most of those cases we're finding in these hotels, as you said, where evacuees from the north and south are living. It is not at all surprising, given that these are sort of these situations are, are sort of communal living. People are crowded. They're not going out and about and doing their business uh, and going to school quite as as they normally do. A lot of places have school in the hotel or activities for the kids in a hotel. So basically, the health ministry has um, 
instructed the hotels and and the health, uh, the medical staff in the hotels to follow basic COVID guidelines, make sure people quarantine, that they don't come out and eat with other people, uh, that they wear masks, etc, etc. So we're not looking at a massive outbreak of COVID. We don't have to worry about that. The numbers are not you know, crazy high, but we do see an increase uh, and mainly in these uh, hotel settings. Okay. Um, We're going to close out this daily briefing. Thank you, Shira. And thank you, Renee, for being with me today. It's been good to talk to you. Thank you, Jessica. In the meantime, thank you listeners for being here for the Times of Israel's daily briefing. We will be back tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. Please feel free to write us at podcast.timesofisrael.com if you have any comments. And until next time, take care and Shabbat Shalom.